So tonight, we're going to spend the next few minutes looking at how uh, the early church was countercultural. Everybody say countercultural. Countercultural. That means a lot of things to a lot of people, but the early church did something that no other movement at that time in history had ever done. Their message transcended culture and it spread quickly through the religious culture of the Jews, but it, it didn't just stay there. It wasn't just another religious denomination or belief, but it also deeply impacted the pagan pluralistic culture of the Romans. And it transcended race, religion, politics, social and economic status. It didn't matter who you were, what part of the world you were in. The gospel was carried by the early church into every type and facet of life. And the, I just, I just want to pause here and say that the message of Jesus broke through every human barrier. Every barrier. Whatever barriers man had built, the gospel transcended them. Every social construct and every cultural setting was no match for the message of Jesus. If you were a slave, you could know Jesus. If you were a slave owner, you could know Jesus. If you were a Jew who grew up in the religious tradition of the Pharisees, you could know Jesus. If you were a Gentile who the scripture says was alienated from the life of God, you could know Jesus. And, and the early believers were armed with an understanding of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that exists beyond what can be seen, a kingdom whose king had laid down his very life and taken it back up again, a kingdom not accessed by bribery, not accessed by political maneuvering, not inherited by natural birth or by wielding worldly power, but by being born again of water and of spirit. You could inherit the kingdom too. Jesus said, verily, verily, if a man would be born again, he can see the kingdom of God. If you want to see the kingdom, all you've got to do is be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. And so I just want to start off tonight by, by saying that it doesn't matter who you are. The model of this church is that we are a place of worship for all people. And it's reflective of this countercultural message that happened in the early church because uh, there's a lot of people who spend their whole life trying to be normal. Amen. Some of you in this place have spent a lot of time and energy trying to be normal. Now, I'm a dad. I, I have a son who's coming into middle school and a daughter who's going into high school. And a few years ago, we could buy Target brand shoes for Rowan and he didn't care as long as he liked them. But now it's all about name brands and he's got to have the right shoes and everybody else has this shoe. So I got to have Nike, white Nike Air Force Ones. And I said, where did you even hear it? Well, all, all my friends have them, Dad. I got to have some. And so we go to the mall and we try on every shoe of every kind and size. And he comes back to the Nike Air Force One and whoo, 100 bucks out the window. Amen. We got to be countercultural. <laughs> a lot of time, energy, and effort going to try just to, to fit in, to be normal. Maybe you were there. Maybe some of you have already given up on trying to be normal. 
Amen. Maybe some of you are still working at it. Others need to go ahead and give up on trying to be normal because it's not going to happen. Amen. But there is a lot of time and energy trying to be normal. Is it all right if I'm transparent for a moment tonight? I remember as a, as a Pentecostal kid, I would invite kids to church because that's what you're supposed to do. And then I would spend all the time between that invitation and that kid coming to church with me praying, God, just let us have one normal church service. <laughs> don't let them be too wild. I mean, we want them to worship God, but we don't want to scare them off. <laughs> and, and inevitably, don't pray that prayer. It's all right. We're just, we just family tonight. I know the Internet's watching. Y'all ignore all this. Amen. Inevitably, you invite somebody to church, you're going to have crazy, high worship in church. Amen. Crazy praise is going to happen if you're praying for God to not let it happen. Amen. But, but that, I remember praying that prayer, God, I don't want him to think I'm too weird. But here's the thing. Normal doesn't work. Normal doesn't work. It didn't work in the days of the early church, and it doesn't work now. You want to hear about normal back then? Back then in the days of the early church, here's what normal looked like. If you were a Gentile, normal looked like pagan worship. It looked like political oppression. It looked like violence and brutality in the world all around. It looked like a world without sexual constraints. It was normal for men to have sexual relationship with wives, with prostitutes, slaves, and, and all kinds of abuses that happened. In the Roman world, religion wasn't life-changing, but it was a collection of rituals that had no impact on their daily living. And so as long as you paid homage to the gods, you could do whatever you wanted to do. It was life without constraint. They believed in many gods, and which one didn't really matter. They didn't even fight over it so long as you honored everyone else's gods in the same way that you honored yours. Normal was being divided by race. It was hating your neighbor. It was being oppressive to those who were lesser than you in society. That is what normal was like. If you were a Jew, normal consisted in legalistic pursuit of God, which divided and broke uh, uh, broke up people's faith and held people. The Bible says the Pharisees tried to enter heaven, but what they were really doing was holding people out. That was normal. And then along came the Christians. To put it simply, Christians were weird. They didn't fit in. They stood out of, uh, from the world around them. Their message was that there is one God, not many, but that there is one God revealed in the man, Jesus Christ. And that by believing on him, that everything would change in your life. And, and listen, Christians refuse to participate in playing the social exchange of honoring other people's gods. In fact, that held them out of a lot of public events because a lot of public events were centered around idolatry. And so Christians found themselves unable to participate in public parties and events because it would be honoring another God, which is idolatry. And so Christians found themselves at odds with the culture in which they lived. They abstained from sex outside of marriage. They loved beyond the con uh, constituents 
constituency of their own ethnicities and races. They valued broken people, forgotten people, devalued people. And their religion touched every part of their interaction with life and with other people. Somebody said they were weird. And here, here's what's really amazing. It's easy when, when you have a unique set of beliefs that, that causes you to run counter to the culture, to withdraw from culture, to withdraw from the face of the world, to live in a monastic society. We taught, we, we, you can read history about the Essens who, who translated a lot of scripture. They went up and lived in the caves in the side of mountains to live this holy life because they were in this world that was so different than they were. But listen, amazingly, the early church didn't become some withdrawn society that withdrew from public life. Christians were of every color and shape. They were uh, rich. They were poor. They were powerful. They were weak. Some were slaves, uh, indentured servants, and some were free. Some were male and female. Some were educated, and others were ignorant and unlearned. But nevertheless... In spite of all of these differences, they came together under the, under the cause of Christ. And they were able to engage their world while being different. And that is the challenge. That is the challenge. It's not just to be different. It's to engage and reach the world while being different. In fact, I, I, I think that there's a lot of Christianity today that spends a lot of effort trying to appeal to the world and to be relevant to the world. And that's all good. Amen. That's all good. But let it never become that we are scared to be too different from the world. Because that just doesn't work when you're trying to reach people. The church engaged the world. Even though they were different. Even though they were set apart. They willingly laid down their earthly differences. And openly lived out the culture of the kingdom of God. They were weird because normal wasn't working. Normal left people in bondage and sin. Normal left people struggling and, and, and oppressed. Normal devalued people and, and, and took them further from the face of God. But this different people, this unique, peculiar people, they impacted their world dynamically. Listen, normal didn't work back then and normal doesn't work today. Can I get an amen? You want to know what normal looks like today? Normal looks like overwhelmed. It looks like rushed. It looks like stressed out. It looks like broke. It looks like debt swimming over your head. It looks like relational tension ending up in divorce. It looks like living without direction, working for a paycheck in a job you don't like. Normal looks like multiple partners in a 50-plus percent divorce rate. Normal looks like guilt. It looks like shame. It looks like a lack of restraint. And it ultimately looks like regret. But listen, as Christians, we are called to be different. A few months ago, we did a series called Different on this very topic in the book of 1 Peter. Peter calls us to be different, to stand out in a world that is dark, to be a light to those who are living in darkness. And listen, the early Christians lived their faith openly and boldly as citizens of heaven. And because they did, they changed their world. I happened to pick up a book yesterday called Unfashionable. It's a phenomenal book. It's actually written by uh, Tolian Chavidian, who is the grandson of Billy Graham, who walked away from Christianity and made his way back, but he didn't come back to a modern, popular 
culture type church. He came back to a more uh, old-fashioned church. And, and his book is called Unfashionable because his whole point is what the world needs is not a fashionable church. It's an effective church. It's a church that's willing to stand against the onslaught of time and of culture. And I want you to hear this quote by Timothy Keller. He said this. He said, if a religion isn't different from the surrounding culture, if it doesn't critique and offer an alternative to it, it dies because it's seen as unnecessary. The early church surely looked like it was on the wrong side of history. But instead, it changed history with a dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that because the church was willing to stand on the word of God, even against the tide of popular thinking, even against the, the, uh, the shifting sands of the world's opinion, because the church held to the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the church clinged to the message of separation from the world, because the church clinged to who Jesus is and what he came for, they were able to move culture back from the brink and bring people to a point of faith in God. They were effective because they were different. Early Christians were proud participants in the narrow way. Does anybody ever remember that scripture? Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow, somebody say narrow, narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life. Early Christians were proud participants of the narrow way. They were weird, but they were weird in a God sort of way. They were weird, but it was because they didn't fall to the uh, pray to the ploys of the devil and the traps of the enemy that he had laid within their culture. They were living in an unimaginably evil time. And God, Peter said it this way, he said, but they were a chosen generation. They were a royal priesthood, a peculiar people, a holy nation who were called out of this dark world into the marvelous light of God so that they could show forth. Why were they called out? So that they could be called out and blend in? No. So that they could shine like bright lights in the dark sky. So that they could stand out from the world. And that they could show the world that there's a God that loves you even in the middle of the darkness. They were weird, but in a God sort of way. And so, we need to be weird too. Amen. If you don't leave with anything else, leave with that. You need to be weird. You don't need to be too much like the world that they don't even know you're a Christian. There, there's a book... Uh, by Josh McDowell, I read it in Bible college, and one of the chapters is titled that if you were accused and put on trial for being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? The evidence ought to be overwhelming. The evidence ought to be clear within our lives because we are the people of Jesus Christ. And listen, I'm going to talk just for the next few minutes on a few simple points about how to live in kingdom culture. Somebody say that. Living in kingdom culture. Because we are not citizens of this earth. And the first step in living in kingdom culture is to recognize that we are citizens of heaven. That we are not just citizens of this world. We are in this world, but the scripture says we are not of this world. 
Listen to Philippians 3.17. Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. And learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. I believe Paul is talking about so-called Christians here. And he said, I say it weeping, but there are people who in their behavior and actions are really, they're showing that they are enemies of the cross. He said they're headed for destruction because their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. What can make a Christian an enemy of the cross? It's when you lose sight of the eternal kingdom of God. When it all becomes about what I can get and what I can do and what God does for me down here. Does that sound like any religion you've ever interacted with? And and Paul says they think only about this life here on earth. They've lost sight of the eternal aspect of living for God. But listen to what Paul says. Here is the remedy. He says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. He said there are some that are distracted and they're caught up in and entangled in the affairs of this world. But he said, but we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship, uh, citizenship is in heaven and where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior, for he will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Paul says we are citizens of heaven. The word citizenship comes from the Greek word polituma, which is the word from which we get our English word politics. Everybody just got nervous. (laughs) But listen, No matter what your political allegiances are and and what they may be and what your political views are, Paul writes that if you are a Christian, your true citizenship, uh, citizenship, I can't say that word, your true citizenship, somebody help me here, pray for me, there we go, it comes from heaven, it's not down here, I'll say it this way, there are politics, I heard a preacher say it and I just like it. He said, everybody's fighting over the elephant and the donkey, but what about the lamb? I don't know about you, but I want to live for the lamb's agenda. I want to live for the kingdom of God because I'm not just a citizen of this earth. I'm also a citizen of heaven. And listen, Christianity is a kingdom. It's not just a religion. It's a kingdom. It has a king. And listen, every kingdom has its own culture. Culture means this, simply define the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a race, religious, or social group. A particular society that has its own beliefs, ways of life, art, etc., And so listen, what Paul is saying is that we are citizens of another kingdom and we ascribe to a higher authority than any that exists here in this earth. And it is preeminent overall. We talked about that in week two, how Christ is preeminent. He's superior to all things. He is the king of the church. And his word and his will are exactly what we are called to live out. We are not our own. 
We are bought with a price. And listen, here's how you know Christianity has its own culture. Because every worldview answers four questions. This is how you define a worldview. It's not original to me, but I think it's an excellent way to look at this. It, it always answers four questions. One is the question of origin. How did we get here? What do you think secular uh, Christianity, I mean, not secular thinking has its own origin story, right? It is the theory of evolution. Do you know, I'm just going to slip this in on you. It's not in my notes. Did you know that the theory of evolution is the longest standing theory in scientific history? It's been a theory longer than any other theory that, that, that is a, still a theory. It was, I think, 1859, 165, 100-some-odd, 60-some-odd years ago is when uh, Darwin first introduced evolution. They have their own origin story, but Christianity has its own origin story, too. How did we get here? Because there is one God who created us. Paul said in Colossians that all things were made by him and all things were made for him. Every worldview also has its own morality. How do we know what is right and what is wrong? Have any of you ever wondered why our world has gone crazy and lost its mind? Rewind 25 years and the definition of right and wrong within our secular American culture has drastically changed. It's changed. Why? Because it has a different source material than we have in the kingdom of God. The word of God hasn't changed, therefore our morality and our views on what is right and wrong have not changed. The world may pass away, but the word of God will stand forever. And so morality in the secular world can shift and change and, and with, with tides and political movements and, and, and grassroots movements, they can try to change people's thinking on what belongs and what doesn't belong in society. But we have our own morality and it comes from the word of God. Not only that, every worldview has its own purpose. Why are we here? And this is the question that the world struggles to answer. You have Epicureans who say that we are here to enjoy life and to gain the most enjoyment out of it. You have all sorts of philosophies. You have hedonism. You have all these things at play and at work. And, and the world has a thousand definitions of purpose. But we know that our purpose, we are here to serve God and to glorify Him and Him alone. And not only that, every worldview has its own destiny. And I don't just mean in your future, I mean what happens after death. Christianity has its own view on destiny that in eternity one day we will stand before the judge of all mankind. And the answer to these four questions set us apart from the world. We believe God created all things, that He defines right and wrong, that we live for His glory and pursue His calling, and that He has set eternity in our hearts, that one day we have the opportunity to dwell with Him eternally. Paul says it this way, underneath all of that, we are citizens of heaven. We no longer belong to this world, but we are passing our time here on this planet as strangers and as foreigners. And when we are born again, we are born again as citizens of another kingdom, God's kingdom. And so what is the kingdom of God? I just want to take a moment and tell you, Sinclair Ferguson defined the kingdom of God as the rule and reign of God, the expression of all his gracious sovereign will. What is it? The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. To belong 
to the kingdom of God is to belong to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun on this earth. Now here's the difference. Anybody ever had a rule that didn't get enforced maybe on your job or at your house? Nobody paid attention to it? That's why Pastor came back and reminded us we were slipping on the social distancing. I confess I forgot to, to have the ushers go to the back Sunday. I apologize for that. But listen, anywhere that there is a rule and that it is not followed and enforced, no reigning is happening there, right? There's no rulership there. There's a suggestion of one, but there isn't one. But God's kingdom belongs to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun. In other words, when God and his word is directing our life, our will, our purpose, then we are in the kingdom of God, right? When we are obedient to the word of God and directed by the spirit of God. The Bible says it this way. If any uh, uh, be led of the spirit, they are the sons of God. They are under the kingdom rule and reign. And so George Eldon Ladd defines the kingdom as the realm in which God's reign may be experienced. Simply put, the kingdom of God is a kingdom where God's appointed king, Jesus, is presently reigning in and through the lives of his people, accomplishing his will on earth as it is in heaven. And so the presence and purpose of God's kingdom, it's underneath the entire teaching of the Bible. And it shows us what God's plan is, past, present, and future for this world. And listen, through the blood of Jesus, through being born again of water and of spirit, we become citizens of that kingdom. We have a new home. And as a result, we no longer feel comfortable here on earth. We no longer fit in here on earth. We join the ranks of the pioneers of the faith in Hebrews 11. As it describes him, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance but listen to this and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own they're looking for home and if they had been thinking of the country they had left they would have had the opportunity to return but instead they're looking for a better country a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them what is Paul saying what is Hebrews saying it's saying that when you live by faith you are looking beyond this culture and you're looking beyond this world your direction isn't coming from the shifting winds of mankind and fading doctrines that come and go you're not tossed to and fro with every wind of change and every doctrine that comes along but you are under the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ in earth as citizens of heaven we look to what lies beyond this world and we step out of earthly cultures and norms and we stop navigating our own morality and meaning by the world around us and we start looking a little bit higher to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When we recognize it, when we recognize that we are citizens of heaven, I want to tell you, it changes everything. And it did for the early church because they recognized that there was something bigger at work in their world than political divisions, than societal systems that had previously defined them. 
They realized they were now foreigners and strangers on this earth and that a transfer had happened. What a perfect time to be talking about this in the early church because we are living in a day and hour where political systems and political levers are being pulled. And, and hear me closely. I believe Pastor agrees with me. It's intended to pull us apart as a church. It's intended to drive a wedge between God's people. But listen, the early church realized that we are strangers and foreigners on this earth. And a transfer had happened. Colossians 2 describes it this way, this way, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so what we have in common may not be what the world sees as commonalities. Look around this room and you'll find people of different races, of different backgrounds, of different levels. Uh, socially, on, on financial levels, you'll find people of all sorts of different stripes in this room. But we are all all citizens of one kingdom and we are all made one by one spirit by the spirit of God that baptizes us and so that transfer deeply impacts the identity of the church and causes us to be countercultural in some pretty amazing ways is that all right if I just talk about what happened in the early church just for a minute I, I've got just a couple minutes left but you know what what the early church did is they found unity in a world of division in a world that was divided, the early church found unity through the Holy Ghost. Racially, culturally, politically, they found a way to be unified when the rest of the world around them was divided. I love this as I begin to study it. Through Christianity, uh, though it began with Jews, it transcended that first culture. And intentionally so. Listen to Jesus' own words when he tells the disciples a great commission. He said, it shall be preached in Jerusalem. That's one culture. Judea, that's the same culture. Judea is the state level of Jerusalem. It's like Monroe, Louisiana. Jer Jerusalem, Judea. But then it's where it gets dicey for the world that he lived in. Jesus said into Samaria. Samaria was divided by Jews racially. They were half-breeds and despised by Jews. They had worship and cultural differences that caused Jews to not even go into Samaria. They would walk around it to get home and circumvent it because they didn't want to deal with it and they didn't want to deal with those people. But Jesus said this gospel will be preached in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the world. In, in other words, what Jesus was saying is it's not just about you, early church, but you're going to preach and you're going to Open your arms to people that if this world had it its way, you would never open your arms to. You're going to open your churches to people that if this world had its way, you would never open up to. You're going to embrace people that if this world had its divisive way, and if Satan had his divisive control, you would never even speak to them. But you're going to preach the gospel in Samaria, Philip. You're going to go to people that should hate you, and you should hate them. But there's going to be great joy in the city when they hear the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom and Philip preached in Samaria and then Peter later went and preached to Gentiles listen it took a vision of God to convince the Jew Peter to go to the Gentile Cornelius but God was invested in that the early church would find unity in a world of division look at the disciples themselves if you ever never have done this you should do it 
you have a tax collector who is considered a race trader. This was a Jewish man who traded sides on his own people, aligned himself with the Romans so that he would be made rich through being a tax collector. On the other hand, you have Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was a part of the faction that was rebelling against Rome. So you had a conspirator of Rome that was following Jesus every day, and you had one who was a zealot against Rome following Jesus every day, sitting around the same campfire. I love it. You had a doctor who was educated in Luke, but you also had some fishermen who were ignorant and unlearned men, and they sat around the same campfire as Jesus. I love it. You had rich and poor, and you couldn't have found a more diverse group with different political and cultural leanings than the 12 disciples themselves. But listen to this. When the kingdom of God becomes our priority, unity becomes our mission. The church came together because they had a common mission, common calling, and a common purpose. They believed that the kingdom was bigger than their personal backgrounds. And look, when, when you lose sight of the kingdom and you start placing emphasis on earthly issues, unity will leave and division will take its place because spiritual forces are at work to divide us. And listen, I want to tell you this. The, the early church, they were not countercultural just for the sake of being countercultural. They didn't attack culture. In fact, uh, the, the, the culture of, of slavery and, and indentured servitude, which was different than the American system that existed here, they didn't attack it to try to overcome it. They didn't try to fix every societal problem, but what they did do is they chose rather to pursue unity and fellowship based on their common salvation, not on political appropriation. In other words, they said, we're going to, instead of asking for change, we're going to be the change that the world needs to see. And when the world wants the, uh, every man to love his neighbor, we're going to example what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by your love one for another. Rather than address issues directly, and caused the Roman Empire to go to war, they addressed the deeper issue of the heart in the individual. The other day I listened to a phenomenal message by a great, great speaker named Vadi Bacham, who is currently a dean of theology at African Christian University in Zambia. And he made a call that we need to resist this new theology that sin exists in institutions. Because scripture teaches us that sin exists in the heart of man. And so I want to tell you tonight, I know that this can be politically charged, what I'm saying right here, but the gospel is the answer. Jesus is still the answer. Jesus is the answer. And that's what the early church did, is they made it their mission to reach the sinfulness of man and change their world by showing them and pointing them to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer for the world today. And listen, if God could do a work in the Jewish and Gentile division and, and, and separation, we, we miss how revolutionary that was, but if God could do it there, he can do it in our nation through the people of God, through people who will love beyond boundaries, beyond politics, beyond donkeys and elephants, beyond all of those things. If we will love our neighbor as ourselves and embrace the bold message of the church that there is a place for every man in the house of the living God, then we can see change 
happen in our world. So how do we live in kingdom culture? I don't have time to flesh it all out, but we find unity in a time of division. We do not ignore our differences. We unite in spite of them. We love those around us with the love of God and share the gospel with every person who's willing to hear it. And the early church reached its world because there was no one who wasn't welcome in the church. Paul was perhaps the greatest example of that message. He was a killer of Christians, a persecutor of the church, and even he could find a home within the family of God. And so the last thing I want to leave you with, and I don't have time to speak on it like I'd really like to, but how do we live kingdom-minded is we live courageously in a time of fear. Everybody's scared to death these days. We're scared of sicknesses. We're scared of financial collapse. There is a spirit of fear that has attacked our world. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. People are afraid. People are on anxiety medications. But how did the early church live? The early church suffered persecution. I love the story of the first miracle of the church. Peter's on his way to church in Acts uh, uh, 3. And uh, he sees a man on the way to church who's lame. He's sitting outside the gates. Been there 40 years. And Peter says, hey, I don't have silver and gold, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And he rises up and walks. And God heals him. A miraculous moment. The first miracle of the church. And thousands came to hear Peter preach. And guess what? It ticked the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests off. The Bible says, in fact, in Acts 4, that they were greatly annoyed. I read that in the ESV today. I cracked up. They were greatly annoyed. Anybody ever been greatly annoyed? (laughs) I've been that way about once a day with my kids. (laughs) They were greatly annoyed, and they arrested Peter and John and hauled them before the council. And they commanded them, you stop preaching the name of Jesus. You're stirring up our constituency. And you're, you're diverting our followers. And, and you stop preaching. And we'll lay stripes on you. We'll put you in prison. You better stop preaching. And they said this. They stood in the face of that council. And they stood up and declared that Jesus is the only saving name. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And they said that it is better for us to obey God than men. There's your social resistance. As they said, when you try to shut us up about Jesus, you're just going to have to do what you're going to have to do because we're going to keep preaching Jesus. And listen, the Bible says they release them and they go back to meet the other believers, persecuted, attacked for their faith. And listen to the prayer of the early church. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the Bible says when they heard what they had told Peter and John, they prayed. And they said, Lord, behold their threatenings. You see this world of fear and the fear the enemy is trying to strike in our hearts. But listen to what he says. He says, Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant us the boldness to continue to speak your word. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. So when facing persecution, the early church didn't give in to fear, but they prayed for boldness. And the Bible says God answered because when they prayed, the place was shaken and the Holy Ghost came upon them all. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I don't believe that just means in that moment. I believe what God did for them in that moment is at a moment and a time where culture was trying to silence the faith of Christians. And, and, and the first preachers of the gospel, the first miracle of the church happened. They were threatened with being silenced before it ever got to Samaria. 
They prayed and they said, God, you see that this culture is trying to stop us, but grant us boldness. And the Holy Ghost came on them and empowered them. And they continued. How long did they continue? As long as they lived. They kept preaching boldly the word of God. So bold that they were stoned, but they still kept preaching. So bold that they were thrown in prison, but at midnight they made praises and sang praises to God, and God opened up prison. So bold that they would march up in the middle of Greek philosophers on uh, on Mars Hill and preach the unknown God who is Jesus Christ revealed to man. That's how bold the early church was. Listen, this is I want us all to stand. The Bible says, with great power, the Holy Ghost came upon them. And the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on them all. The early church made a difference because they lived boldly for Jesus. And listen, that's the kind of church that can reach its world. We need to get comfortable with not fitting in. Comfortable with talking about why we abstain from sexual relationships outside of marriage. Comfortable with talking about why all lives are precious and we stand against abortion and we stand against racism and we stand against the uh, uh, sex trafficking trade. We need to get comfortable to publicly declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need to be Christians that hide from culture. I'm not saying go pick a fight with everybody, but at some point the church has to have enough backbone to stand up and preach that Jesus is the answer for the world today. And because the early church did that, they had great revival. And they massively turned their world upside down. I close with this. I I, I intended to play a video. Some of y'all saw me texting. I was trying to get the video back up to the media booth. And I didn't know Sister Chelsea wasn't here tonight. So no video. But I'm going to share it on Facebook. There's a young man named Victor Jackson, uh, evangelist, young, uh, powerful preacher from uh, Florida. And when all this stuff broke out with George Floyd, is he felt God told him to fly up to Minneapolis. And so he flew up to Minneapolis and he found a crowd of several hundred people who were standing in a circle. And I don't know what, what, who had organized it or how they, he didn't organize it, he was just there. But he steps into the middle of the circle and he says, I want to get everybody's attention. Is there anybody here who believes that God still has hope for this city? And all of a sudden, this crowd that was kind of milling around turned and looked at him. He's on the spotlight now. And he said this. He said, I want to pray for each and every one of you right now that God would restore relationships, that God would bring a spirit of unity, and that God's spirit would be poured out in this community. And all of a sudden, people started clapping and hooping and hollering with him. He leads them in prayer. But when he's done with the prayer, he says, I can't leave you without telling you this. He said that if we will all repent of our sins, if we will be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God will fill us with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And he will give us everything that we need to overcome the, 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 the problems that are in our nation at this moment and time. And something happened in that crowd. The anointing hit that young man. Young evangelist, boldly. Nobody invited him, but he just stepped to the forefront of a moment in history. Let me tell you something. That is what will change our culture. The church just being the church.
Amen. How many of you want to see God do a work like that in our world? I want to see people filled with the Spirit of God. I want to see people reconciled to the love of God. Can we just pray right quick before we receive our offering? Lord, God, you've spoken to us through this series, and I pray in Jesus' name, God, that you would give us a holy boldness in this last day to stand against the tide of culture. God, to preach the message of Jesus Christ, to not blend in with the world, but God, to boldly and passionately live out our faith. God, so that we can see the lost redeemed. So that we can see the darkness dispelled. So that we can see hate turn into love and brokenness turn into healing, God. I pray that you would do it in our church, God. That you would do it in our community, God. That you would do it in our families, God. That you would bring healing and restoration that can only come through the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us rise in this moment in our nation and in this hour. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask it. And if you believe it, would you say amen? I want our ushers to prepare to receive our tithe and offering at the back. I want to thank you. Thank you again, Pastor, for allowing me to teach. Amen. I believe that God has a revival for our generation just like Book of Acts. How many of y'all believe that? Amen. Amen. We've just got to live it and embrace the, the ideology of the early church. Amen. And I believe God is going to do some great things. Did you need it? Sunday, Jeff Ferris is going to be here. Amen. It'll be a great day to bring somebody at a social distance and let them get the Holy Ghost. Amen. We're going to have a great time here Sunday with Jeff Ferris. God bless you. Uh, You can give on your way out. We bless it in Jesus' name for the furtherance of the kingdom and gospel. May God bless you. Be dismissed.